The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Wednesday, January 23rd, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Here's a line from an Axios report that I would like to discuss. So what does it mean? Hold on, Axios freaks. We'll get to that. It was about who Trump can tick off and who he can't if he is to make any deal with Democrats. And Axios quotes an unnamed senator as saying, Trump can withstand Ann Coulter. He can't lose Hannity and the rest. Because once LBJ lost Cronkite, he knew he had lost America. And once Trump lost Ann Coulter, he lost two claverns and a bunch of Twitter feeds with eagles and flags in the user's name. I guess if you lose Hannity and the rest, whoa boy. Here's the thing. It is impossible to lose Hannity because Hannity's beliefs are what Donald Trump says. Hannity is a rather dim bulb who knows how to be the face of a network that is literally set up to enable whatever Donald Trump says. And Coulter, on the other hand, while odious and not a fan of folks any shade darker than Ricardo Montalban, is a little smarter than Hannity, and she does have a spine. But here is the true folly of wanting to satisfy a constituency of pundits. It's not that they have bad ideas, even though they do have bad ideas. It's that their agenda is to use provocation and to tap into a well of resentment, not to advance policy, but rather to outrage viewers in order to get more viewers, ratings, and advertising dollars. There is a fundamental difference between Ann Coulter and, say, Grover Norquist or the Heritage Foundation. Those activists are active so they can bring about policies that they favor. Their divisiveness, their falsehoods, their incendiary statements are all ends to crafting an America that you and I wouldn't enjoy, but that's their game. I mean, they want their own people on top. They want themselves to be personally richer, and they're using the things they say to get there. But Ann Coulter is different. She just wants people to be upset. There is no destination that would satisfy her. Her game is to be a peddler of outrage. That's the business model. She gets to say horrible things that people, some people, want to hear, and she sells books based on that. She is not using the tools of propaganda for anything then furthering her own propaganda. It's not that she doesn't have actual beliefs, hateful though they may be. It's that her point on earth is not to see that her idea wins. It's to see that her idea sells. And you can't give Ann Coulter a win. You can only give her fodder. On the show today, I spiel about a few things I find unfair with the general dismissal of the Kamala Harris candidacy. On the show today, I spiel about a few things I'm finding unfair about the general dismissal of the Kamala Harris candidacy. But first, the story of a Greek basketball coach. What, you're not a huge booster of Panathinaikos? Well, me neither. But I am interested in the coach, Rick Pitino. Our conversation here today occurs his last stomping ground before America essentially spit him out. Patino's a great coach, a compelling character, and a bit of a scoundrel. For instance, just a few weeks ago, a federal jury found that an assistant coach of his from the Louisville days committed fraud by bribing amateur players. Patino, as always, escaped sanction. Reporter Michael Sokolov is here to tell the tale.
what do you think the most valuable college basketball program is? If, if you were to think, Kentucky, right? It's religion down there. Indiana, Bobby Knight, who got away with things that would make a clergyman blush. Maybe someplace like uh, Duke or UCLA with all their championships. No, 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 and no. The answer is the University of Louisville. Louisville. Why Louisville? Well, they've had a good basketball team for a long time, and the state does love its basketball. But in two words, Rick Pitino. He is the subject of the new book, The Last Temptation of Rick Pitino, a story of corruption, scandal, and the big business of college basketball. It's written by Michael Sokolov. Hello, Michael. Thanks for joining me. Hello. Great to be here. So I did I did cite the name on the cover. Rick Pitino sells books. But there is another man here who's really important, and that's the uh, athletic director of Louisville. Why don't you tell me about him? Well, Tom Jurek preceded Pitino at Louisville. He, he was there for about 20 years. And he is an absolute visionary. You know, he was an athletic director who had worked at a couple smaller places. He had been an NFL place kicker. He played one game for the New Orleans Saints. He missed three place kicks, two of them chip shots. And that was the end of, of his NFL career. But he became an administrator. He came to Louisville after two other jobs. And Louisville was just a non-factor athletically, ac- academically, And he sensed some potential there. And maybe most importantly, he sensed a hunger in Louisville's muddied class uh, for a big-time sports program and a willingness on their part to pay for it. And and he did remarkable things down there, you know, based on his own vision and certainly powered by Patino as well. Okay, so let's. So we haven't talked about Patino, and you know, I was a sports reporter for almost ten years. I loved Rick Patino as a sports reporter. He gave you great quotes. He not only had an extroverted magnetism, which good college coaches do because they got to get in there and recruit. He really was a genius coach. So having established that Rick Patino was this great coach with national championships, who actually belongs in the Hall of Fame as a coach, why don't you tell me what he brought to Louisville that ties into corruption scandal and big business? Well, the first thing is, as a coach, you're absolutely right. You know, what he brought was this air of New York with him. You know, he's a creature of the night, and that was well known. A former trustee at the University of Louisville referred to his Sinatra-like posse. And people loved that. You know, there was a little bit of glitz, a little bit of style. And, you know, all to the good until these scandals and this stench of not one, not two, but but three scandals fell over him. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's the last guy to figure out uh, that he was done. So three scandals. Let's lay them out. What's, what's the first one? Scandal one is this incredibly tawdry incident in Porcini's, a restaurant, an Italian restaurant in Louisville, where the restaurant closes for the night. But even before it closes, all of Patino's friends start melting away. You know, goodbye, coach, goodbye, coach, because he's hanging out with a woman named Karen Seifer at the bar. As it later comes out in court, they have sex briefly in a restaurant, a closed restaurant, a banquette. Now, extramarital sex is part of the human condition, but she goes ahead and tries to extort him at a certain point. It's just sort of tawdry and awful, and it's awful for him. It's awful for his family. Right. He apologizes, and, you know, that's scandal number one. Right. Okay, let's move to scandal number two, also sexual. (laughs) Scandal number two is what's known in Louisville as Strippergate. And this is uh, a series of parties, not over one or two or three, but a series of parties over four years in the basketball dorm, sponsored 
by one of his staff members, who's pretty much his chief of staff and a former player of his. And the, the other host of this, these parties, a woman named Katina Powell, and she's a local escort. And these are essentially stripping and sex parties for the benefit of recruits who come onto campus to play for Rick Patino or to possibly play for Patino and some of his then current players. Patino said, Oh my goodness, four years of these parties in the basketball dorm, no one ever told me. You know, that's terrible. But how could I have possibly known about it? So scandal one is sexual about Rick. Scandal two is sexual, but it's about recruitment. Scandal three is not sexual, but it's also about recruitment. Tell me about scandal three. Well, scandal three is the wide ranging, you know, FBI Justice Department investigation of college basketball recruiting, which broke just about a year ago now. And a central thread in that case is the recruitment of Brian Bowen Jr., who's known as Tugs. According to the tapes, according to the FBI, it is not really countered by anyone. His father took some money for Brian Bowen Jr. to play at Louisville. Uh, one of Patino's assistant coaches, one of his young assistant coaches, is on tape in a hotel room in Las Vegas uh, meeting with one of the characters, one of the defendants in this. Another assistant coach seems to have altered some paperwork about a street agent who came with the Bowen family to visit campus, a street agent being a go-between on the recruiting circuit. So what you have is this, again, catastrophic recruiting situation. Is it the only time that kind of thing has happened in the NCAA? No. But it falls on Patino that one of the kids who's coming to his school, his father seems to have been paid. You know, we can talk about his response, but basically it's the same thing. How could I possibly have known? I told people to do the right thing. They didn't do the right thing. Uh, so basically it's on them. It's not on me. I also think that Manafort wasn't prosecuted because of prosecutorial discretion. And it's not as if three years ago they couldn't have put the case together. There are just some cases that prosecutors deem worth charging and some cases they don't. Once you marry the facts and establish the facts and marry that to charges on the books, which would be what what's essentially, are, are we talking about a denial of honest services case or is there some other RICO statutes that are being violated? Violated? Well, the charges are basically bribery, mail fraud, and conspiracy. Right. So those are those are against the law. They're going to try to <laughs> they're going to try to marry it to these people. But I, I guess I have the bigger question, which is, and so what? And so in this one case, they get a conviction. Will that clean up college basketball? Will that even make a one percent dent in cleaning up college sports? Well, it might make a one percent dent. It's certainly not going to clean it up. The problem with college basketball is the billions and billions of dollars coursing through it and the fact that virtually none of it goes to the players. One of the, one of the things that I point out in the book is that the money that is said to have come to Tugs, his father, Brian Bowen's father, was $19,500. That is one quarter of 1% of Rick Patino's annual salary. I mean, that breeds huge cynicism. You've got, you know, People on the, you know, families on the grassroots circuit, they're savvy, they're smart, they get it, and they're basically like, you know what? If all that money is out there, I'm going to take some of it. And, and they do. You know, if that equation can be changed and they start either paying players or dial the whole thing down, 
in terms of how big it is, which is unlikely, that you know that that is what would clean up college basketball or maybe clean it up. Yeah. So this brings me back to our original AD character, Tom Jerk. He got fired. I mean, he was fighting with the school and eventually he was uh, released for cause, but got a huge payout, right? Correct. Yes, he did. Yeah. Does the fault lie with, there's this old expression, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game. I think that Rick Pitino is, well, he seemed like he was playing the game very well until he wasn't. Maybe the bigger finger should be pointed at, you know, a guy like Jurek who didn't have to take Louisville to the number one program, didn't have to sign a lease deal with the Yum Center that almost brought it to bankruptcy. Uh, There was an opportunity and he took it, but he seems more of the malefactor in the global sense than even Patino does. I guess I'm going to disagree with you some there. I hear what you're saying, but you know, it's important to know about the personality of these two guys. Jurek uh, is not a sophisticated guy. You know, he's a sports-centric guy. He sees everything through a sports prism. And in his mind, his job and his only job was to make sports bigger. You know, more money, more facilities, more wins, everything. And he did it. And and that is is what he was charged with doing as he saw it. You know, Patino is an urbane guy. You can talk to him about wine. You can talk to him about politics. You can certainly talk to him about horses. Uh, you can talk about him to him about criminal justice. He knows better. So he now is suing Louisville for $35 million in back pay. I mean, that's obscene, number one. (laughs) And it's also really cynical because he's playing off whatever sympathy he has left there, whatever memories of of the great times in Yum Center, to just rake in more money. So I, I, you know, Jurek, I think Jurek doesn't see the world in quite as rounded ways as Patino does. Jurek's just like, hey, man, you gave me a job to do and I did it. What's the problem? And we can see the problems. I don't think that he honestly did. He didn't know any, you know, he was a a bulldozer, you know, just forward, forward, forward and uh, did a great job in that regard. Tell me the one strand I think I left uh, unexplored is Tugs, Bowen. He can't play college basketball. He couldn't even. He tried to go to South Carolina and they wouldn't let him. Is he going to get a shot to play in the NBA? You know, he's to me, he's the, the tragedy of this story. And we didn't go all the way through it. But just briefly, there there has to be a victim in a federal case of conspiracy or, or, you know, any of these charges. And the victim, according to the government, is the universities, which is almost laughable. And they are the victims of this alleged crime because they may receive ineligible players and then not get their TV money. But the victim, in my mind, is these players. When you listen to the tapes, when you, when you look at, look at what went on, they were being traded, uh, and played against each other by, these defendants, that's what's alleged. Money was being exchanged and in many cases they didn't know about it. So now you've got Brian Bowen Jr. who is a pretty good player, but he's a six seven wing guy. He's a good shooter. He's sort of good at everything. So he's a guy who maybe had a 50-50 chance of having a significant NBA career. But the best way to get in the NBA is still to play college basketball, particularly to be coached by somebody like Patino. He wasn't a one and done. He might have been a two and done, I was told. Now he's over in Australia. That's one of 10 or 12 uh, significant leagues around the world, That, but it's not the NBA. 
He's one of a thousand plus players hoping for a chance in the NBA. So it's going to be harder for him. I've met the kid. I've been around him. I, I, I like him. He's a sweet kid. I, I hope it works out for him. Michael Sokolov is the author of The Last Temptation of Rick Pitino, a story of corruption, scandal, and the big business of college basketball. Thanks so much. Thank you. It was really enjoyed being on with you. And now, the spiel. Some things that annoy me about the dismissal of Kamala Harris. First of all, Kamala Harris seems fine to me. Would I vote for her? I don't know. Maybe she's no Amy Klobuchar. Man, I love me that Amy Klobuchar. She and Sheldon Whitehouse are just the best members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, don't you think? I mean, Harris is on it. She's okay. She doesn't really get to the nub of things like Amy Klobuchar. But look, not everyone could be Amy Klobuchar, a smart former prosecutor who is a female senator running for president. Wait, that describes Kamala Harris too. But in the day, within an hour of her announcing, I found out there was a right-wing smear campaign to allege she is ineligible to be president because, uh, it doesn't matter. Some bullshit reasons. My truck with this story is not just the obvious discredited troll who is propagating this story, but the members of the media who are spreading it. They're using their credibility to point to this troll saying, don't believe this troll. So this troll, whose name is Jacob Troll, I've changed his last name, has tweeted out, Kamala Harris is not eligible to be president. Her father arrived from Jamaica in 1961. Her mother from India in 1960. Blah, blah, blah. Untrue, untrue, untrue. But Jamil Hill, formerly of ESPN, with her 1.1 million followers, tweeted out, I can't believe this guy. Rather than not believing this guy, just don't give him air. This fellow's Wikipedia entry is Jacob Troll, not his real name, born December 12th, 1997, so he just turned 21. Jacob Troll is barred for life from futures trading due to defrauding investors in 2016 by posing as a hedge fund manager and real estate investor. Troll, not his real name, is an American right-wing fraudster, conspiracy theorist, online blogger, internet troll. Oh, I guess it's eponymous then. And he's a former columnist for the Gateway Pundit. It also notes that Troll drew national attention in 2018 after news outlets reported his involvement in a failed plot to discredit Robert Mueller by framing him for sexual misconduct. Ugh, great. Troll's a troll. You just dunked on Chud. Fantastic. Hey, remember the last time we all had a laugh about someone who was alleging a person didn't have the right birth circumstances to run for president? That man's name was Ted Cruz. But the guy doing the alleging was Donald Trump, who you might know as a right-wing fraudster barred from running a charitable foundation due to lax oversight, as he posed as a real estate investor. Another thing that annoys me about the coverage of Kamala Harris that she's too tough on crime. Here's a headline from The Intercept. A problem for Kamala Harris? Can a prosecutor become president in the age of Black Lives Matter? So here's the case. As Attorney General of California, she criminalized truancy. She's overlooked the misconduct of her prosecutors and fought to uphold their wrongfully secured convictions. She defended California's choice to deny gender reassignment surgery to a transgender inmate. And in 2014, she appealed a federal judge's holding that the death penalty was unconstitutional. The list goes on and on, but in some ways, the details don't matter. To quote The Intercept, yeah, they do. To quote me, the transgender surgery issue, for instance, well, the executive director of one of the largest LGBT groups in the state of California, a guy named Rick Zburr, says that Harris was pretty constrained in what she could do in her office as state attor- attorney general. Zburr 
gives her high marks today. The Lambda Legal Defense Fund isn't quite so forgiving of her time in office, but it does say, they do say, that when Harris became personally involved with the trans surgery case, she comported much more with what they consider to be best practices. They like Kamala Harris very much. I mean, as state attorney general, she had a staff of 1,000 people. She didn't know about the case until she learned about it from news coverage, and she had to follow the law it was written. She was a fairly tough prosecutor, meaning she served the interests of her constituents. Perhaps that means she doesn't serve the part of the Democratic Party represented by The Intercept. But that would be fine to say in a story if the story were... Is Kamala Harris as good on all the issues as the left wants her to be? But recall the phrasing of the story, problem for Kamala Harris. Or the Guardian's headline, Kamala Harris, can a top cop win over progressives in 2020? Well, it depends how progressive. And it matters if we're talking about a narrow slice of the electorate with the most uncompromising definition of progressivity, or just regular Democratic voters who consider themselves somewhat elected. And another annoying thing about Kamala Harris, that's not annoying about Kamala Harris, it's annoying about some coverage of her, is that she's from California and that California votes very early in the primaries. How early? With early voting in California, they'll actually be voting before New Hampshire, although their primary date is after. So as you know, California has a lot of delegates. It has 495 delegates to be exact. Iowa has 49. New Hampshire has 33. This is a huge advantage for Kamala Harris. But Rebecca Buck of CNN tweeted, I fear a lot of analysis right now overstates Kamala's potential home state advantage. Anyone here remember how that worked out for Marco Rubio? Okay, that's true. A wounded and by then third or fourth place Rubio lost to fellow Florida resident and infinitely more exciting candidate to conservatives, Donald Trump. But you know what? Decent candidates won their home states. In 2016, Kasich won Ohio, Cruz won Texas, Bernie won Vermont, 2008, McCain won Arizona, Romney won Massachusetts, Huckabee won Arkansas. Then Obama won Illinois and Hillary won New York. In 2004, Kerry won Massachusetts, Edwards won North Carolina, and there was only one state where former Vermont Governor Howard Dean succeeded. It was Vermont. California is not winner-take-all, so there's no winning California, but she can get a massive haul of delegates. It's much more likely Harris does well in California, despite the fact that one time this other guy didn't do well in his state, even though all the other times, almost all the other candidates do do well. And the issues, oh yeah, the issues. Seems like she's a Democrat. Not so far out there as to be concerning, not so entrenched as to be boring. We'll see how the issues play out. And all I say is please let them play out and resist the premature dismissal of Kamala Harris. So annoying. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname has four things that annoy him about fellow just producer Daniel Schrader. And Daniel says, just four? Huh, maybe I'll bring my number down from 19. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcast. She may have lost Willa, but she can't lose Dana and the rest. The gist, we may have lost Doug Henning, but we've still got David Copperfield and the rest. Oomperu, deperu, du peru, and thanks for listening.